welcome back to another episode of the Inside Japan podcast, which is sponsored by Jobs in Japan, the best place on the internet to get your next job in Japan. I'm Charlie, and today I'm talking with Daniel Norris, a friend of mine from Sogo Acro Yoga, who's also a university professor, and he's going to talk all about、uh, university, about finding hobbies in Japan, and about what it's like to live in Japan as a foreigner. So, hi, Daniel. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Hey, Charlie, and thanks for having me. Awesome. So,、um, so you're a professor in Japan at university. What do you teach? So, there's, I'm in two different contexts. So, two different universities. One university, I tend to focus more on general English skills. Whereas at my other university, it's related more to international studies.、Uh, so, one deals more with world issues, global issues,、um, some focus on things like SDGs, the UN. Uh, equality, poverty, climate change, those sort of topics. And then the, the other context, it's more、uh, specifically on, for instance, speaking skills or reading skills or something like that. That's really interesting because、um, a lot of people they assume that if you're teaching at a university in Japan, that you're probably teaching English. But when you're teaching something like international studies or international relations and you talk about those things like the UN and the SDGs, the、um, Sustainable Development Goals,、um, how do you find that Japanese students react to that compared to sort of like the English students, which you know, kind of has a framework that most people might understand from living here or from understanding how English is taught? And then seeing how do they react to Um, international politics and things like that? Sure.、Uh, there, there needs to be a little bit more context because within those, that sort of、uh, international studies focus, there's actually two, what I would describe as two branches, essentially at my particular university. So one is more on、uh, students who have already established and sort of international background,、mm. such as students who have,、uh, who, who are. You know, from abroad who have come to Japan to study, right? And so their level, their English le- level is much more、uh, either native or very near native. And the other side,、uh, it's still international studies, but with students who are not native speakers,、um, more of the sort of what you would call a、uh, you know, typical Japanese student, right? With that sort of、uh, background. And so obviously, those two sort of branches, they differ quite a bit. Um, in terms of the students, more of like the international focused type of students、um, who have come from abroad or have that experience,、uh, they can handle it basically no problem. And, you know, with only some very slight sort of modifications and how you might talk to a purely native classroom, it's pretty similar, I would say.、Uh, on the other hand, the other students, There needs to be、uh, a little bit more adjustment in terms of how you approach these topics. But I come from a stance where I believe, I believe in them, I believe in their ability. And so it, it's typically my experience is in the beginning of a semester with new students.、Uh, it's quite natural for them to feel, in some cases, a little bit overwhelmed. And certainly during the semester, there's still points where that happens, right? But I consistently try to have this approach where I believe in them and I try to support them,、uh, even when these topics are quite difficult. And for me, it's really important just to、uh, emphasize that whichever context they're in, these topics are very relevant to them. 
right? And I think that's really important uh, when we're teaching, this, especially these types of topics. Uh, the, the quick example I might give is if you think of something like uh, poverty, for example, you know, it, it might be hard to understand this in a extremely deep way initially, right? Because the context of living in Japan it's, I, I tell students, well, okay, this is, might be a little bit harder to see this in your daily life, but it exists. And so in order to make it easier for students to understand, I try to make it relevant. I say, well, let's look at this article from the, J the Japan Times. And this is a situation that's happening in Tokyo, right? These are the people behind this issue. And so, you know, this isn't something that's just across the globe in some small country you've never heard of. Uh, so for me, that's kind of how I try to approach it, especially for the students who might not have uh, as many experiences studying these kind of topics. So making it relevant for them uh, and believing in them, honestly, is sort of my my approach. And I think that's a good approach to have. And I remember when I was working at international school, I had the same issue where you get the first week of students coming in and they're just overwhelmed and they you know, have that kind of like big eyes, like deer, deer in headlights kind of look to them because it really is overwhelming. Um, and I imagine the same situation would be if I you know, had gone to university to study Japanese, even if I had a basis in Japanese, like it would still have been really difficult for me to to do that and keep up um, with, you know, even with my level of Japanese now. So um, yeah, I think that approach to it where you actually think of it as a growth mindset where it's like, okay, yeah, they don't understand this stuff now and maybe they can't even relate in their life because you know that the some of the problems of things like poverty in Japan are much less visible, not only in part because of the culture where people maybe feel a little bit, um, uh, and I, I've, maybe you know this, um, that, the homeless population in Tokyo, there's some kind of weird shame uh, dynamic to it where they don't seek out help and they don't um, like, they wouldn't like beg on the street or something or, or um, you know, I've never had someone really beg for money in Japan. Whereas, you know, when I went to California and I was in LA and, and San Francisco, it was quite frequent. Um, that part of it means that it's a lot less visible to people who maybe don't have to worry about poverty in their daily lives. So I think it's an interesting uh, thing to be teaching at a university and to show those students like this is a problem. You might not see it every day, but it is a, um, a problem. So I think that's a, it's a really useful thing. Um, so I'm curious yeah. about um, how as a, as a professor in Japan, um, what are some of the, uh, the interesting uh, aspects of working within the Japanese context like do you have to speak Japanese in your work every day or do you find that you're um, sort of separated from the sort of like more Japanese side of the university structure and that you just come in and teach your classes and then go home um, how does that work this one's actually pretty easy to answer yeah you might not like the answer but it depends <laughs> two okay. words uh, and that's the truth, because I can tell you that directly from my experience. One university, I don't need any Japanese skill, really, in terms of like something I absolutely require. On the other hand, my other university, all the communications are in Japanese. And if I need to email someone in the, the staff, I need to use Japanese. Um, if I go there and I have some technical problem at the school, I need to use Japanese. So, uh, but I'm not fluent. You know, I'm not like a fluent native Japanese speaker. I'm not even close to that. 
So it depends. Uh, you might be able to find a university which has a lot of English support. Typically, in my experience, the bigger type of universities usually have a bigger international program, which means they will probably have uh, better English support. Or you might have an experience where the uh, supervisors or head of the departments might be native speakers, mm -hmm. which is the case in, in one of my universities. On the other hand, like I said, if you're at maybe a smaller place or just depending on the situation, you might find that there is some required level of Japanese. Um, but I would say if, you know, it, it might be pretty hard if you have zero. I'm not going to lie. It would probably be quite hard even to get your foot in the door. However, there are always exceptions to every rule. And so I can also say at the same time, there, there certainly must be some situations where you don't really need much Japanese. I'm sure they exist. Yeah. Um, and I, I think it's an interesting point to make that some people do come to Japan and they kind of expect to be able to get by with English alone. And I think you can, for sure. There are a lot of people who have been here for decades and, and you know, can just about order a, um, a chuhai or something. <laughs> um, <laughs> but then there are people who, you know, really get into it. And the amount that being able to speak Japanese opens up for you, um, even just in sort of comfort level with Japanese people, right? There might not be a requirement for the job, but I noticed that... Um, in schools when I would, you know, speak to staff in Japanese, um, they would feel a lot more comfortable with me. They'd, uh, in, you know, kind of include me more in uh, discussions in the, in the office. And that would not only be better for my job as a sort of like positivity, feeling good about where I work. Um, but I think it was, it was good for like, you know, keeping those jobs, not just being like a, a foreigner that's sort of like a, uh, um, what would be the word, like transitory person who's like oh yeah well they're just going to be here for a few years and then they'll leave because you know they're a foreigner and that's what's expected instead it makes you feel like maybe you're more part of the community which i think is a really important thing um to to feel in japan absolutely so what are some of the positive aspects of working in the university system here because um i've never worked at a, as a university teacher but i have worked at a university affiliated high school and um they're it, it can be complicated, right? It can be it can be difficult, but what are some of the things that you really like about working in the university system here? Some things, some key things I would say is, uh, number one is coming, in my context, coming from, uh, you know, other teaching contexts, um, junior high school, high school as well. I, I've been in those, you know, uh, different schools as well. And coming coming back into university, the biggest thing for me is in terms of the engagement I can have with the students. Um, as you might expect, it, it, it's typically the case. You can have much uh, more sort of um, uh, deeper conversations and you can dig in to different sort of topics like the world, world topics and things like that that are going on. And so it's really interesting. Um, I, my sort of personal teaching style also tends to um, sort of challenge students is I guess the, the best way to put it. Uh, and so, you know, I, I feel like I'm able to challenge students more than I could in lower levels. Uh, and for me, that's, 
that's really quite suitable. It might not be for everyone, but for me, I, I sort of um, do well in that environment. So I do like that aspect uh, that I can engage students more. We can go into deeper conversations, these sort of things. Um, also, there is, in my experience, a lot more responsibility to, uh, to figure out how to do things and to execute good lessons and to grade in a sufficient way. And these, all these kind of things that are related to this. Uh, and for me, I, I basically thrive in that environment where I have the responsibility on my shoulders and there, there aren't people dictating what I do and how to do it. Um, whereas again, if you are in other contexts, high school, junior high school, and so on, there tends to be a lot more oversight um, in how you do things and a lot more so control over how you do things. So uh, yeah, for me, I, I thrive more in that you know, the university, uh, you know, environment in that sense as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, I, I just want to, uh, as an aside to that, like, um, I remember, and this isn't true of all ALT positions, but when I was an ALT in Nagoya, um, it really did depend completely on the the mood and attitude of the teacher the main teacher the japanese teacher um where i would have some teachers who would be very open to my input and uh discussing what would be the best way to teach you know a particular grammar point or a particular lesson and then i have other teachers who um they were like okay you're a tape recorder so i'm just gonna say okay and now listen to the pronunciation from an english speaker and then i would say the words and then they'd go back to teaching like mostly in japanese um which you know that like you said it often depends how the context is depending, depending on the teacher depending on the school or the the region that you're in um and you know in, in nagoya i'm sure it's very different from tokyo maybe they have um higher standards in tokyo i'm not sure but um yeah that's that's definitely something that um, I noticed like going from being an ALT to being a main teacher in a high school classroom where you're then responsible for not only creating your own lessons and a curriculum, but you're kind of responsible for the outcomes. Like it becomes very obvious if you're not doing a very good job uh, very quickly to, to um, not only to other teachers, but also to you. Yeah, uh, very, very true. And I've been in those situations as well. Um, when I first came to Japan, I was also an ALT. And you know, at the same time, though, I, I, I totally understand what you're saying. Um, I always think there's room for still making progress, still making connections with students and, and things like that. Uh, but it's, it is very different, right? You have a lot more uh, freedom in that sense in the university. And uh, for me, I really like that personally. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you do have to look for that. Like, I'm, I don't want to knock the ALT profession because I've met a lot of ALTs who work really hard and do a great job. And one of the things that uh, a great ALT taught me early on, he said, um, even though it's not part of your job, do the, um, the aisatsu in the morning, like when you go to the gate and greet the students as they're coming into the school. Um, that was huge. I didn't realize, like, it's a, it's a, it seems like a small thing. Like, it was just 10 minutes of my morning every day where I would just go to the gate and the kids would come to school and you'd say, like, oh, hi, gozaimasu, hi, gozaimasu. Hey, how's it going? And you'd say hi to the students and you'd kind of try and remember their names and some of them you wouldn't. So you'd just be like, oh, hey, how's it going, you? Like, <laughs> and, um, but that, that actually had huge value because then the students would see you as part of the, the community and then they for some reason like the it would feel more comfortable in the classroom just because 
they would feel like you have some kind of connection as opposed to just like you're the ALT who comes in, does the tape recording for the class and then like leaves. Um, you'd actually absolutely, like talk to them and have a relationship. Yeah. Um, so what's your philosophy of education and how does that sort of help you deal with some of the difficulties of, uh, of teaching, especially in the sort of Japanese culture context where, you know, it might be different from what we're used to growing up in the West where, you know, the teacher would ask questions and you raise your hand in Japan, you try that, that, that can be, um, you, know, you met, get met with a, a deafening silence of students who just don't want to be picked on. But um, how do you, how is, what's your philosophy of education uh, as it relates to the Japanese context? Sure. It's, I think there's a few things. I think it's extremely important to have empathy for students, even more so during these times with mm -hmm. COVID and everything. Uh, it's also really important to feel relaxed. When you are relaxed as a teacher, I really believe the students can start to feel more relaxed. And in the Japanese context, that's incredibly important. It's incredibly useful. Uh, in my experience, this is how you can reach a lot of students. Uh, there are plenty of stereotypes about Japanese students, right? They're shy, they're quiet, they don't participate, all these things. And I would be lying if I said there was no truth to this. Um, because the simple fact is, yeah, there is a tendency for that to happen. But I don't feel like that's a roadblock, a roadblock that nobody can get over. So I think if you, if, you know, my approach to that is be relaxed, be prepared when you ask a question or when you start a new topic, be, be prepared for the, you know, inevitable situation when there is silence, when students don't, they don't know how to respond or they are too afraid to. I think it's as simple as asking the question in a different way, right? For instance, instead of asking that question as an open-ended question, just relax, change it to a yes or no question, make it as simple as possible until you're able to get a response. And I think it's also just as important not to put uh, unnecessary pressure on students, especially individual students. This is also very important in Japan, whereas in other countries, this might uh, be an advantage, right? But here I feel like that's often uh, a disadvantage where it doesn't really have a positive outcome. So, I, I, I try to be ready for that. I try to empathize with them because who knows what their background was, right? Maybe, and it might be very likely that for a lot of students, their background was in uh, education in which there wasn't a high value on them asking questions and raising their hand and, and speaking out of turn and things like that, right? And so as a teacher, how, you know, is it really fair to expect them to be chatty and, you know, like I said, just speak out, speak, you know, spontaneously in these things. I don't think so. I mean, right? That's not really fair uh, if, if we don't know their backgrounds and we just expect that of them. So uh, I do, 
as I said, I, I'll touch back to what I said before. I do believe in the students. I believe that they are smart, that, that every single individual matters, that everyone, that every individual has some meaningful, interesting experience to share or perspective. I really believe this, every single one, no matter what their personalities are. And so my job as a teacher is uh, trying to make sure to get everyone involved, but uh, do so in a way that, that uh, inspires them, that doesn't shut them down and put that you know, unnecessary pressure on them and, and encourage them in a positive way. And when it doesn't go as planned, uh, adjust, you know, adjust, relax, adjust, no reason to get all worked up about it and complain about it. Uh, that's our job, right? To find ways, how, how can we navigate that? How can we uh, connect with them and open them up, right? And so my experience is, you know, as long as I have this approach, uh, it might take time. It depends on the class, depends on the school, but eventually I do feel like I'm able to make progress with every single student. Um, and so that's, I, I don't know, that's kind of how I would um, explain my approach here. Yeah, there are a few things um, that really stuck out to me what you're saying, like one of them was about preparation. And uh, this was something that I got really uh, ingrained into me when I started teaching uh, as a kindergarten teacher, where um, another teacher who was at my school, who was a really talented, very, very smart, very, um, uh, very, very competent teacher. And he told me like, we, you should always expect that something's going to go wrong always expect that. And if you don't, if you're thinking, oh yeah, my lesson is going to go perfectly, nothing can possibly go wrong. Like that's when it definitely goes wrong. So make sure that you're prepared for things to get derailed, for you to not be able to cover everything that you need to do in class or to cover everything that you've done in class in half the time. You know, everything needs to be, every eventuality needs to be prepared for. And that's how you become more relaxed as a teacher. Because if you're, you know, worried about your class, you're like, oh crap, I didn't prepare. I didn't do enough work. I didn't uh, get everything ready, then you're nervous because you're thinking, okay, what can I do in the last 20 minutes of class? We're going to finish super early. I have no idea what we're going to do next. I haven't got anything ready for the next thing, you know, and then, then the students will see that, like you said, the students react really strongly with how the teacher is behaving. So if the teacher is relaxed, then they'll feel more relaxed because they're like, okay, the teacher's got this covered. He's in control or she's in control. Um, but if you're nervous because you didn't prepare properly, then uh, that can become a real issue. <laughs> exactly. And uh, another point that I try to stress is that we are all human, even me. <laughs> and I will, you know, emphasize this during the whole semester, right? And, and I always tell my students that it goes both ways. So if you forget your homework, it's okay. It's fine. It's not a big problem, you know? Like, you know, some students in their previous uh, previous semesters, classes, teachers, you know, they forget it and like, oh my God, I'm so sorry, you know? I'm like, it's okay. Like, we're human. You forgot once. You, otherwise, you're doing great in the class, you know? And so, it, you know, yes, if, if a student is uh, not doing any homework, yeah, that's going to be an issue. We'll talk about it, right? But, but typically, I tell them, you know, no problem, right? And at the same time, I tell them, hey, I it's almost certain that I will make some mistakes. Uh, it's basically guaranteed, you know, whether that is uh, some, uh, you know, grammar or something on the worksheet that I gave you or, you know, some assignment, maybe I messed up the date. And I tell them, guys, that's going to happen. And 
but it's okay. Like we're gonna make this work. And if there's a mistake, uh, I'll probably catch it or you can tell me, please, please tell me, don't be afraid. I'm not gonna be angry. I'm gonna be happy. I'm gonna appreciate that. And at the same time, I try to give them that respect as well, right? Where I tell them, hey, I'm human, you're human. Um, it's okay. And like, you know, if I ask them a question that was a homework question and the student can't answer, I'm like, you know what, it's okay. Uh, like no problem at all. You can think about it. We'll come back to you later. Or, you know, maybe someone can help you. Like let's help each other. And so uh, that's, I guess that's one more thing I would mention. I, I have this um, sort of uh, theory that let's help each other as a class and let's get everyone involved. Um, remember that, that, you know, I'll tell students to remember that when you have questions, when you have issues, it's not only about uh, asking me, you know, your classmates are very smart and you guys can help each other as well. So uh, those are a few things I would mention. Hi everyone, I hope you're enjoying the conversation and I just want to take a quick moment to mention that this podcast is only possible because of the support of jobsinjapan.com. So next time you're looking for a job, check out jobsinjapan.com. There are tons of jobs on there, not only in English teaching, but also software engineering, hospitality, marketing and consulting, among many others. Most of the jobs on the board do not require any specific level of Japanese and you can get started in minutes. So next time you're looking for a job, check out jobsinjapan.com and let's get back to the conversation. Yeah, and I, that's a really important um, point that you made about how much empathy and how uh, strict are you going to be with the students? Because I've kind of changed my mind on this back and forth over the years where it's like, to, to what extent do I want to hold students to really high standards so that when I do hold them to those high standards, they, they uh, trend towards meeting them, right? Like if I tell students, like I'm expecting really good stuff from you, they tend to rise to the challenge. But at the same time, when it comes to a language learning environment as well, that Japanese students in particular have this kind of perfectionism that can actually be detrimental to their learning of the language, where they think I need to get this sentence completely perfect, otherwise I should just say nothing or I should just write nothing. Um, and um, you see this in particular, like uh, we had this really great exercise um, that we did at my previous school where at the beginning of the year, we would do a 10 minute timed writing exercise. And I'd say like, this is not being tested. I'm not, um, I'm not going to grade this. This is just for you to see how much, um, how well you can write in 10 minutes with a time limit, because we'll be doing this a lot in, you know, tests and exams and stuff. And, and you want to increase your writing speed. And, um, you know, I would find a massive difference between different students at the beginning of the year it would teach me a lot about what the students could do. Some students would write a lot of stuff, but it would be really terrible quality. Some students would write like three perfect sentences in 10 minutes. Um, and then at the end of the year, we do the same activity, but I wouldn't tell them like oh, we're doing the same activity as we did at the beginning of the year I would just take in that sheet at the beginning of the year and I would keep it in a folder in my desk for the whole year and then the last class we do a 10 minute timed writing activity with the question um flipped so it'd be like the first question would be like um you know how are you feeling about you know starting this year at the school and then like the final question would be like how do you feel you know your English progressed in this year at the school something like that you know it'd be, it'd be a, a mirror of the question and then uh, after they finish their timed writing, I would take out their timed writing from the beginning of the year and show them and say, look at the difference between how you wrote at the beginning of the year. You wrote like three, you know, perfect sentences. And at the end of the year, you write like 
two pages of really good quality like yeah there are a few mistakes in here but look at the difference like this is just an astronomical difference um and i felt like that was a really important thing for students to recognize was you improve you you changed a lot um and showing them that i think helps with their confidence a lot because um like you said before like sometimes japanese students don't have the confidence to speak up when you just pick on them in the middle of a class without any preparation um but showing them like yeah you've improved like that i think that can be a real big boost to their confidence yeah uh i do the same thing um I, i'm always trying to uh show them how they have progressed and give them reminders you know this is also uh, absolutely man it's part of my strategy as well give them constant reminders that everyone look at your progress you know when we started the semester do you remember that first discussion we had and after you know just reflect on today's discussion and how everyone was able to get into this and we had really interesting insights from everyone you couldn't do that at the beginning of the semester so i'm always trying to do things like that as well uh now one like last little side note that i want to mention is um i really believe that it's it is possible to uh to challenge students and in some ways be strict while also coming from a relaxed sort of humanistic approach mm -hmm. i do believe these both of these are possible right so uh i wanted to mention because you said you know in your experience you it it kind of goes back and forth right and i totally feel that when I first started university teaching, this was actually years ago. So before I came to Japan, I did a bit of it. And I was like very strict, actually. My, I, I did have these extremely high standards. The, the problem was I was strict and had high standards. Whereas now I have high standards, but I'm much more relaxed and easygoing. And from my perspective, at least from my teaching style, this works so much better. Right, mm. because what I found is, you know, way back when I was a complete novice, um, uh, I had this thinking like, okay, I need to be really serious, and uh, you know, from the very beginning, I need to be strict so that I set the bar and they know they need to be serious and everything. I don't want them slacking off. You know, I'm going to be a good teacher. You know, all this stuff. The the thing is, it worked at the very beginning. The problem was, as the semester went on, they got burnt out. Mm. They got completely burnt out, man. And I learned from those experiences because when they got burnt out, it just had this like negative effect. And then that had a negative negative effect and it just kept going. And it would it would be situations where a student gets gets stressed out and they miss an assignment. And then I would say, hey, like, you know, you missed the assignment, you gotta do it, right? By this deadline deadline. And then maybe they mess up on their presentation, right? And it keeps building because they have that pressure and they don't feel comfortable, right? They're afraid of, of messing up because they don't wanna see their you know teacher get upset about it or whatever, right? So now it's, it's more of this approach where yes, I do have a high standard in some sense, that's kind of a natural way about my teaching, I guess. And uh, I'm not going to BS them, you know, when it comes to something like their writing, if they wrote, a, uh just to make a simple pretty bad essay uh, i'm going to uh, i'm not going to sugarcoat it right i will say well first thank you for your effort because again we come back to the empathy side right 
we don't know, even though it's, it's terrible from our perspective, but maybe they spent a lot of time on it, right? We don't know. So I, I do want to be very genuine about that. And I say, you know, I, I really do appreciate your effort. Maybe you spent a lot of time on this. Uh, however, I want to help you improve. And so let me point out a few things uh, that we can work on, right? And I'm not going to BS them from that point on. I'm going to say, look, you don't have a thesis statement. And remember, maybe we can review this, go in your textbook and let's make sure we have the different parts, you know, right. in, uh, in your paragraphs, let's make sure we have these things. And so I I'm going to, to say those things, right? But it's going to be in a way that first, yes, maybe worked very hard on it. I really do appreciate that sincerely, not just a BS thing. I really do. But we also want to improve this, right? Because um, there, there's a lot of things. Let's focus on these. Let's clean this up. Let's improve, right? And so there is that serious side of it. It's not just all, hey, let's have fun and like everything. Right. No, you don't have to do your homework. No, it's not like that at all, right? Yeah. But it's, it's, you know, what I found is like the vast majority of students, as long as you cut them a little slack where they miss an assignment or they miss a day, or something and they don't email you whatever that's fine like because i i say that's human that's just right. human even the best students that happens and like i want them to feel like oh that's okay like yeah. you know oh, well, it's okay. a tough and then it's a tough balance sometimes right because you have um on on one side you want to hold them to like i said high standards but if you don't create that relationship with them where they know that they can come to you if they have problems or they know that if they screw up you're not going to bite their head off if you don't create that relationship then um it does start to fall apart and and it's really noticeable when you don't have a relationship with a student and i noticed this a lot um at at, uh, at high school is i tried really really hard to have normal friendly conversations with the students as well like to to not i'm not trying to be their friend but um to ask them like to take a genuine interest in them and their their progression their 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 own interests as well um and i found this uh, there was a one student in particular that i'm thinking of when i when i think of how this worked really well and i actually kind of learned this from being a kindergarten teacher where there are always going to be those kids who are really badly behaved and if you create a relationship with them that um then you can then you can be strict when you need to be because they're like, oh, well, actually, I care about what this teacher thinks of me. I don't want to disappoint them because they're maybe one of the only teachers who looks at me like I'm not a screw up, you know, and yeah. um, and that can be huge for some students, like some kids who they, you know, all they get from other teachers is, you know, you didn't do your homework. You're a terrible student. You know, they're getting C's and D's all the time. And then I teach them in my class and I'm like, wow, that was a really interesting point that you made in your, you know, in your writing or in that last lesson, you, you know, you said something about this and that made me think, you know, what about this? And then I'd like maybe take five minutes in a lesson to talk about it because I thought it was interesting. I prepare something for the following lesson. And then that student feels recognized. They feel like you actually care about what they have to say. And then you can create that kind of trust with them so that when they do screw up and you, you know, they don't put an effort on something, you can say, Hey, I, I know you can do better than this. I, I've seen you do better than this. And then they feel yeah. like, yeah, yeah, I know I can, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Completely um, agree. I'm curious also about how your teaching, because uh, again, coming back to relationships, how did that change during the pandemic? I'm sure you had new students who, you know, uh, were you teaching online when you first, uh, when the pandemic first started in, in 2020? Basically the pandemic pandemic started to flare up while the universities were on their spring break, essentially. 
And so, yeah, as soon as we came back, we did go online uh, basically immediately. That that's true. So when the when the uh, spring semester started, yeah, uh, we we did go online, and yeah, it was it was same thing. I didn't have experience teaching online before, and yeah, man, it's not easy. Uh, it's it's rough. Uh, there's a lot of challenges with that, hmm. and it can be I'm very curious, stressful. I'm curious, what did you do to because um. I know a lot of teachers who really struggled with um, the technical aspect, but, you know, given that um, I think we're both quite technical people, what did you specifically do to try and either like replicate what you might be able to do in a classroom or to sort of adapt to this new different way of doing things that might have its own benefits to, to, to come with? Yeah. Um, yeah. For me, it was the, the biggest question that I had coming into the online lessons is, okay, how are we gonna do uh, cooperative exercises in the class? How are we gonna make sure that um, all the students are speaking, having a lot of chances to do that? How are we gonna do that? How are we gonna manage that? How are we going to encourage it? These are the, question, the main questions I had, uh, aside from the technical stuff, right? Because as you said, yeah, like I, I'm pretty good with technology. The problem is the students aren't. Oh, so, yes. so that, that's another issue though, but to answer your question, uh, for me, it was, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to be using break rooms a lot. Yeah. Right. When, it, at least for me in zoom, um, and I'm going to make sure that as much as possible, I'm giving them chances to speak to each other, uh, whether that's in pairs, groups, uh, whatever it is, because it would be very easy if, if at least in my case, if I were not careful, it would be very easy to just end up lecturing and lecturing and just, you know, uh, like showing them things and like videos and stuff, right? Just through the nature of being online. So that was a big focus of mine. Um, trying to uh, create different ways of them to communicate. So uh, like mm -hmm. as an example of that, um, one of the types of assignments I made was uh, like a conversation, uh, what did I call it? Like a conversation assignment, basically, where I gave them groups and outside of class, they would have to meet their group members. They would have to record a conversation. And depending on where we were in the semester, uh, if this would be guided in some way, the first, uh, first um, sort of assignments would be very guided to make sure they were able to actually do it. Um, you know, and then as we, we did more of this, I gave them a little bit more freedom, a little bit more freedom until it was essentially their own conversation, right? So that's just one example of, of something that I would do where uh, I couldn't, well, I typically wouldn't do when we were in, you know, pre-COVID times, right? Because we didn't use Zoom and students didn't have access to that, but that was an opportunity, right? Which, which presented itself and I thought it worked pretty well, right? Mm -hmm. That's great. Um, so we don't have that much more time. And what, one of the things I wanted to talk to with you about before uh, we finish is um, about the acro yoga stuff, because that's where I met you um, through, yeah, acro, through Sogo Acro Yoga. Um, and uh, I wonder how you got not only got into acro yoga itself, which, um, by the way, for people who haven't heard of acro yoga before, it's kind of like yoga, but with um, a partner, kind of like partner yoga, but you like the... Um, 
one person will be the base and one person will be a flyer and then you'll kind of pick each other up and do really cool very it's very acrobatic like that's why acro yoga it's it's like acrobatics uh yoga it's a little bit slower but it's um uh it's really exciting and really fun and it's a great um uh i guess stretching slash muscle workout as well <laughs> so um i really got into this after um hanging out with you and and uh, going to the the sogo acro yoga for a while so how did you get into that and how did you kind of um help it to because i know you and a, a few of the other people in our group were people who kind of helped it to grow in japan as a as a, a hobby you know yeah so one quick thing uh if anyone is listening or watching what is acro yoga the best way to understand that is honestly google it look at some pictures yeah. look at some video and yeah it's hard to explain much, <laughs> it's much easier to to see just looking at a video or a picture uh in terms of the question so how did I how did I get into acro yoga? Is that the main question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so the, the the basic story there is uh, just randomly on Facebook I saw a picture of acro yoga, and I had never seen it before. So I thought, wow, this is cool. What is this? Right? That was the question. What what is this? It looks so cool. It looks fun. And uh, at the time. Uh, so one of my friends, Charlie, you know him, but Simon, uh, he also found a what's called a jam. Okay, a jam for anyone who doesn't know. This is basically a practice session, essentially. Uh, and it was a jam and a what I would call a casual lesson, uh, sort of both of those things. Anyway, Simon, my good friend, he found that. He invited me to go. And I said, heck yeah, let's go. And from there... Uh, it was that first experience. I completely loved it. It was awesome. I couldn't get enough. We we kept going to that weekly session for a while. And eventually, uh, after building some skills, it got to a point where uh, actually both Simon and myself, we thought, you know, in Tokyo, there really isn't a foreign community. There, Acro Yoga was very small, relatively speaking, it was very small at the time. There were not many groups or opportunities to learn or you know practice and uh i have to give simon credit because it was his first idea to make some sort of international focused group so to speak that would be you know taught in english and you know um really encourage this sort of international feel and uh he sort of inspired me to also start something as well and so long story short, what basically happened is both of us ended up making uh, like individual local sort of groups. And, uh, and we had these going for a little while. And then after some time, eventually these combined into uh, Sogo Acro Yoga, right? And so again, kind of trying to make this as short as possible, but basically <laughs> Sogo Fitness, uh, this amazing, awesome nonprofit international fitness organization in Tokyo. Uh, we made some connection with that. And through that, we started Sogo Acro Yoga, which is a branch of Sogo Fitness, which has many other branches of other different activities. And that really sort of boomed at the time. Uh, it's gone, you know, it, it's like a it's like a wave where it goes up and down depending on who's in Tokyo and then who's leaving and all these things. Uh, but yeah, that that's kind of how 
it started and that's kind of how it's grown into what it is. Uh, now, I absolutely, it would be shameful of me to take credit for, you know, starting Yoga in Tokyo. That'd be completely, uh, you know, uh, dishonest to say that because there were people before me, there were people before Simon, before both of us. Um, and one of the, the, the key people would be Lisa Nishimura, uh, who started Acro Yoga Japan. So that did exist before, but like I said, it was relatively small. And when we started, one of our goals was let's expand this, let's get more people into it. Uh, let's make some uh, availability for this in English and, and you know welcome more people and things like that. So yeah. um, that's kind of how it started, how it started to grow. And that's one of the things that I love about that community. Like one of the things that kind of drew me to it in the first place, because I'm, uh, I really enjoy acro yoga, but I'm not like you. I'm not like, I need to do acro every day to feel good. Like this, it was like, I am enjoying it. But the, I think one of the nicest things about it was it was such a warm and welcoming community where it's like, if you want to come and you want to do this practice with us, then you're our friend. You're, you're part of our group now. And, um, and that welcoming nature was really like, that's, it's very different from some other kind of groups where, you know, the, some groups get kind of cliquey and, you know, if you're not part of the group, then you don't get invited to things. And, and that's one of the things I love about this group is people would come along and you'd be like, okay, we'll show you the basics and, and we'll, you know, offer our time freely to try and, uh, you know, help people to get interested in this thing. So um, yeah, I really, I really love that. And I highly recommend anyone who's listening, if you're interested in coming to uh, Sogra Acra stuff, like uh, I think you're starting to do more, um, things now like during the pandemic we kind of shut everything down because we were doing yeah. <laughs> we were doing yeah. acro in a in a basement which didn't have great airflow so I think that was a good idea to stop at that point and not go to, yeah. the, not go to that place um, yeah. Yeah. that would have been a definite risk <laughs> but um, now we're, we're doing stuff outside there's um, there's other acro yoga groups uh, in your yogi park the acro yogis uh, group yes. as well which um, you're quite active in and uh, and stuff in uh, Shinjuku Chuo Park uh, so yeah I'll post links to that in the description um, I want to wrap up here so uh, thank you so much Daniel for coming on the podcast it's been really really great talking with you yeah you're welcome thanks for having me it was fun awesome thank you very much <laughs>